With me, please, to the first chapter of Romans. Romans 1, verses 18 through 32. I don't know why it is that Carolyn always uh, wants to watch football games. Uh, I want to have a nice, uh, quiet evening at home and talk, and she wants to watch football. Um, last, last week I pointed out that Paul's concern in the book of Romans is to talk about the good news. The uh, good news is that God has promised salvation and his righteousness is established in the fact that he's provided it. His uh, part of the contract of the covenant was to make salvation. And his righteousness is established by the fact that he made salvation. He came to earth and and made it available to us. Our righteousness is established by believing it. He offers it. We accept it. That's the nature of the contract. Now, the, the opening chapters of the book of Romans are more concerned about bad news than good news. Uh, very often we'll say to one another, I have some good news and bad news to deliver. Which do you want first? And inevitably we'll say, well, give me the bad news first because we want to get, get that established. That's what Paul is doing. He first tells us that there is some bad news before he can proclaim the good news. And the bad news is that we as a human race are in big trouble. The, uh, the situation is very critical. The crisis, as a matter of fact, is total. And he will conclude in, in chapter 3 that we have all sinned, bar none, and come short of the glory of God. Right across the board, we've defaulted, we've sinned, we, we have established our unrighteousness before God. We can't do anything about the past. We can't do anything about the future. We're habituated to sin. We need help. And that help is the salvation that, that he offers. That's the good news. But before he can declare the good news, he has to proclaim the bad news. Verse 18. The wrath of God is now already being revealed from heaven against all godlessness. That has to do with our relationship with God. That has to do with theology. And wickedness. That has to do with morality. The wrath of God is now being revealed from heaven against all godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth, that is the truth about God, by their wickedness. Since what may be known about God is plain to them because God has made it plain to them. How? Because since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, qualities, that is, his eternal power, and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that men are without excuse. I would make three observations about this paragraph. The first is that everyone in the world knows about God. Everyone in this room knows about God. The, uh, the black Australian in the outback knows about God. The person in deepest, darkest Africa knows about God. You can't even swear effectively without God. And who ever heard of ripping off a round oath in the name of natural selection? It just doesn't, it doesn't ring true. 
everyone knows about God. That's why atheists are so militant, because they're inveighing against something that is deeply entrenched within them. C.S. Lewis tells about a conversation he had with one of his friends, a colleague at Modlin College. They were, they were walking across the campus. They were both atheists. And they were talking about their atheism. And his friend Barfield said, uh, rum thing, he said, rum thing. It does seem that it's true after all, doesn't it? Can't get away from it. Everyone knows about God. No one was behind the door when the knowledge about God was passed out. The Old Testament says the same thing. If you turn back to uh, Psalm 19, David puts it this way. The heavens declare the glory of God. Uh, the word for declaration here is the word for narration. The heavens are narrating. They're telling the story of God's glory, his weight, his value. The skies are proclaiming the work of his hands. Day after day, they pour forth speech. Here's a kind of nonverbal communication that comes from, from nature, from, from what's visible. Day after day, they pour forth speech. Night after night, they display knowledge. That is the knowledge of God. There is no speech or words or language where their voice is not heard. Their call, literally. Uh, if you look at the footnote of the NIV, it translates it that way. That is, the, nature calls people into relationship with God. Their call goes out into all the earth. Their answers, is the word, their answers to the ends of the world. Answers to what? Answer to the question, is there a God after all? Nature says unequivocally, yes, yes, there is. Can't get away from it. You may know the story of Helen Keller who, when she was 19 months of age, uh, went blind and deaf. She was totally cut off from the outside world from that point on. When Annie Sullivan, her nurse and her teacher, finally broke through and communicated with her, she scrawled out on her hand her knowledge of God because Annie Sullivan was a, was a believer. She was a Christian. And Helen Keller said, yes, I know him. How did she know him? Well, the psalm tells us, in the heavens God has pitched a tent for the sun, which is like a bridegroom coming forth from his pavilion. Uh, the sun comes up every morning like a groom going out to claim his bride, eager, fit, full of enthusiasm. The sun bounces up into the sky. Uh, it changes the metaphor like a champion rejoicing to run his course. It rises at one end of the heavens and makes its circuit to the other. Nothing is hid from its heat. And in the, in the Near Eastern world, the sun bears down upon you and you feel its heat, even if you can't see it. His point is just illustrating how pervasive, how all-pervasive this communication is about God. This is what uh, theologians call natural revelation, to be distinguished from, from special revelation. Special revelation is the revelation in Scripture. It tells us a lot more about God. But natural revelation, that is uh, a revelation through nature, tells us a few things about God. There are boundaries. And if you go back to uh, Romans, Paul will tell us what those boundaries are. You learn from the visible world something of God's invisible qualities, qualities his eternal power, and his nature. I, I have men who tell me that they go out into nature to worship God. That's, that's their worship service. And I appreciate that because I, I do feel closer to God sometimes up in the mountains. 
But uh, the question is, what do you do with that knowledge of God? See, that's where Paul is leading us. The problem is not that we don't know. We know. Every person knows. But the question is, what do we do with it? Which leads me to my second observation on this uh, paragraph. We suppress it. Paul says, we suppress the truth by our wickedness. In other words, the problem is not intellectual, it's moral. We, uh, we're, we're very adept at uh, erecting intellectual arguments against God. We can put God down with our minds, but uh, we know, we know. The real issue is accountability. We don't want to be accountable to anyone. We want to run our own life. We want to call the shots. We want to be in charge. And it has nothing whatever to do with intellect. I, I worked for years with students, and uh, these were very bright students, and I always felt intimidated by them when I, when I first started working with them because, you know, they, they have all these arguments against God. And I began to see after a while that while their arguments were very deft and they were very good at, at, at trying to avert a conversation about the existence of God, when it, when it got right down to, uh, to, the, basic, uh, to the basics, they did not want God in their life, and the intellectual arguments were nothing more than an attempt to try to keep God at arm's length. We know, we know about God, but we suppress the truth, and that's why Paul says we're without excuse. If we were to stand before God today, we would bow our heads in worship, and we would say, I knew, I knew. Now, uh, the second paragraph takes us on. Uh, Paul, having established the fact that we know, builds upon that premise. I, uh, I took my title for this, uh, this message, The Descent of Man, with uh, apologies to uh, Bernowski, uh, whose uh, book, Ascent of Man, was uh, very popular a few years back. But I took it from this paragraph because this, this paragraph describes... Uh, man's uh, deterioration, his downward progress. Ogden Nash has a poem. Uh, I couldn't remember all of it. I was trying to think of it all this week, and I couldn't find it. But it goes something like this. Uh, Men define progress as movement toward perfection, but most of my progress has been in the other direction. And uh, this is is what Paul is describing. Although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him. You see what he's saying? We know God. But we don't give him glory, nor are we thankful. We're churlish. We're like spoiled children who won't give thanks for what we've received. One of the things we teach our children from the very beginning is to be thankful when they're given something, to write thank you notes to grandmother when she sends them something, or to thank people for their kindness. And Paul says, God gives us love and laughter and children and joy and health and all the good things of life, and we never give him the time of day. We'll never say thank you. We, we think of ourselves as self-made men and women, and we, we won't even say thanks. And he goes on to say uh, that their thinking then becomes futile, empty, and their foolish hearts are darkened so that we become befuddled intellectually, and we become muddled morally. And that's why we get our moral cues from uh, Oprah Winfrey and uh, 
from Dr. Ruth and from Phil Donahue. These are our gurus. These are our philosophers. These are, these are our ethicists. They're the ones that tell us how to live. We don't know. So we start casting. We don't know up from down. We don't know right from wrong. We are, we are befuddled in our thinking. Paul says that's, uh, that's what we can expect. We, though we know God, we don't give thanks to him, and our thinking becomes empty, and our hearts are darkened, we become morally darkened, and although we claim to be wise, we become fools. We take leave of our senses. We no longer know where, where reality lies, and we exchange the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal man and birds and animals and reptiles. We exchange God, the invisible God, for an image of insects and uh, dung beetles, as the Egyptians did. That's the ultimate stupidity of man. And what he's saying is that when, you, when we degrade God or try to degrade God, we just degrade ourselves. We become less human and less humane. And we end up worshiping insects and bugs and snakes and uh, uh, people. That's all humanism is. This is another form of idolatry. It's worshiping man instead of God. Uh, my son bought a car this past week. Uh, it's a great car. It's a 1968 Plymouth Fury. Uh, it is two, three years older than he is. I've always felt that a kid's first car ought to be older than he is because then he will treat it with more respect. <laughs> and he was out there yesterday washing it and polishing it, and it is a thing of beauty. He loves that car, and it, you know that, that's understandable in, a, in a, a boy who's growing up. I'm pleased for him. But isn't it odd what we've done to automobiles and to uh, other animate uh, inanimate objects, we worship them. I read the funniest article in, in, uh, in Psychology Today a couple of months ago. I don't subscribe to that magazine, but someone gave me a copy, and I happened to be reading through it, and there was an article in there by an Oxford professor by the name of Philip Marsh entitled Driving Passion. Really very interesting. He points out how uh, our cars are simply more than extensions of our own personalities. That uh, we started out, we'd park our car in the in the barn because that was the only place to park it, and then we started. We built garages out in the front of our house, and then we added garages onto our house so that the garages became an integral part of our house. I mean, we just brought the car right into our lives, and now we personalize them and all. He was kind of poking fun at this whole thing, but at the end, this is what struck me. He said, "A visitor from another planet." might see the car as a central feature of an almost universal terrestrial religion. The Sunday preening and cleaning of the revered icons in the weekly worship and the motor show is the weekly worship and the motor show is the annual holiday celebration of the car. Now I just laughed out loud. Oh, I have a car. I like my car. I mean it's a nice car. But but you know it, it, some of our our stupidity is shown in the attitudes we have toward things like this. Objects that we think somehow will fulfill us and satisfy us and make us feel more complete. And it's, a, it, it's an indication of how we have degenerated as people. This is the decline, the descent of man. Verse 24, therefore, 
God gave them over in the, sin, in the sinful desires of their hearts. Now, you'll notice if you have a New American Standard Bible or a King James or some other translation other than the NIV, three times he says, therefore, he gave them over. Therefore, he gave them over. Therefore, he gave them over. I think this is the wrath of God. If you notice the, the wrath is now being revealed. He's not talking about the wrath of God at the second coming. He's talking about a wrath that's being expressed or revealed from heaven, brought into the realm of our experience now. And uh, what it is, is the law of inevitable consequence. We reap what we sow. As C.S. Lewis puts it, God gives us that terrible freedom that we have longed for. He lets us have what we want, and we just trash our lives. That's the point. If we want to live that way, God says, I'll let you live that way. And life becomes dull and ugly and grim and meaningless and dead. That's what the, that's what the Bible, that's the way the Bible describes it. We become dead. And that's the wrath of God. He lets us have what we want. And the first thing Paul says we do. Although I don't see these paragraphs as sequential. I think he's talking about life in general. You can see this happening in society everywhere. Therefore, verse 24, God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. You see, when you try to degrade God, you just end up degrading yourself. We are the ones that are hurt by it. They exchanged the truth of God for the lie, which he then uh, defines in, in the phrase that follows. And worshipped and served created things rather than the creator who is forever praised. We ought to be praising the creator, but we praise the creation. That's why we talk about Mother Nature. You ever think about that? We're praising the creation. As though it is self-perpetuating, self-propagating. That's why, that's why we become evolutionists, hardcore evolutionists. Are you aware of the fact that Charles Darwin's father was a minister and he spent his whole life trying to run away from God? He was a PK. And he hated it. And he hated everything that the church represented. He spent his whole life trying to run away from God. And that's where the whole idea, the theory of evolution, came from. Now, I don't believe in a recent earth for myself. You know, the world could be billions of years old. The Bible doesn't say how old it is. It was not created in 4004 B.C. That was a, it was a mistake that crept into the text a long, long time. and didn't creep into the text. It was something that was, that was added to the text uh, by Bishop Usher. Uh, I, don't, I, don't think the, I don't believe the world was created uh, in 4004 B.C., and there's a great deal of change within species. I understand that. But the Bible says God created the heavens and the earth. The problem with evolution is that they do not want to go back to original sources. They don't want to face the fact that God did it. That's where the Bible starts out in order to correct our thinking. God created everything. It's the beginning. Evolution doesn't have any beginning. Now, uh, you know, they obscure that by pushing things back into, into you know, eons back. One of the ways in which they, they keep us from facing the fact that there's no origin is that they, 
They postulate long periods of time. The idea is if you have enough time, almost anything could happen. Put enough uh, monkeys in the room typing on typewriters, they would type one of Shakespeare's sonnets. You know the argument. But, <laughs> but uh, they never answer the question of ultimate origin. You push it back, you push it back, you push it back. question still rises. Where did it come from in the first place? They can't answer that question. And evolutionists can't answer the question of where we're going. No origin, no destiny. C.S. Lewis has a, a humorous evolution poem. It goes like this. Lead us, evolution, lead us up the future's endless stair. Chop us, change us, prod us, weed us, for stagnation is despair. Groping, guessing, yet progressing, lead us nobody knows where. Wrong or justice in the present, joy or sorrow, what are they? While there's always jam tomorrow, while we tread the onward way. Never knowing where we're going, we can never go astray. <laughs> to whatever variation our posterity may turn, hairy, squishy, or crustacean, bulbous-eyed, or square of stern, tusked, or toothless, mild, or ruthless, towards that unknown God we yearn. Ask not if it's God or devil, brethren, lest your words imply static norms of good and evil, as in Plato, throned on high. Such scholastic, inelastic, abstract yardsticks we deny. Far too long have sages vainly glossed great nature's simple text. He who runs can read it plainly. Goodness, what comes next? By evolving, life is solving all the questions we perplexed. But it doesn't. Doesn't answer any questions. Doesn't tell us where we came from or where we're going. And basically, that's why the theory came into being. Because we don't know. We don't want to know where we came from. And we don't want to know that we're headed toward God. So we can just do away with all of that. And live as though we made ourselves. That's what Paul's talking about. We worship the creation rather than the creator. Who was meant to be forever praised. Amen. He says, I believe it. Verse 26 through 27. Difficult passage. Very difficult passage. And I don't want anyone to misunderstand what I'm saying. Because I have great compassion for people in the homosexual community. When I see gays march, it doesn't make me angry. It breaks my heart. Because I know of the terrible loneliness that they, that they experience. But what we have to understand from this passage is that Paul unequivocally says that gay is not good. Homosexuality is a sin. Period. We need not be muddled about that. Uh, Barney Frank, who is uh, our representative to the U.S. Uh, uh, United States Congress from Massachusetts, came out of the closet a few years back. He's an avowed homosexual. And uh, his, when he announced that he was a homosexual, his comment was, who cares? And interestingly enough, 87% of the people in his district didn't care. 87% said it will not affect his candidacy, in my eyes. Now, is it right or is it wrong? Is homosexuality sin or is it merely a sickness? Is it something genetic or is it something environmental? Well, Paul takes us out of that muddle and he says, it's sin. It's sin. 
It is not the worst sin in the world, but it is, it is the most undignified thing you can do to your body. That's the point that he's making. This shows how, how far we can take our, our, our flight from God. Because of this, God gave them over to degrading lusts. Even their women exchanged natural relations for unnatural ones. In the same way, the men also abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed indecent acts with other men and received in themselves the due penalty for their perversion. Perversion. Paul doesn't think it's natural. He thinks it's sin. It's something unnatural. It's perverted. And there are consequences, which we're seeing today, AIDS. And perhaps the saddest thing of all is to see an old homosexual who has lost his attractiveness, who does not have the dignity reserved for aging straights, and who wanders the streets of San Francisco looking for someone to love him. You see, that the heart of the homosexual condition is a longing for love. They are lonely. They want to be accepted. They want to be complete. They want to be loved, just as you and I do. And in their old age, there's nothing more, more pitiful than an old queen. I know. I lived just south of San Francisco for 18 years. I know what it's like. I've talked to them. I pity them. I don't despise them. I have compassion on them. And we do not help them when we condone it. There's only one way out, and it's, it's the way that you and I have to choose from any sin. It's repentance and faith. There's no other release. Now, Paul, Paul goes on. You know, about at this point, we start feeling real self-righteous. At least I haven't uh, gone that route. Paul says, furthermore, since they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, he gave them over to a depraved or a corrupted mind to do what ought not to be done. To batter wives, to swap wives, to commit incest, all of the, the, the sins that uh, we're, we grieve over today in society. They have become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, Evil, greed, and depravity. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, and malice. They are gossip, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, and boastful. They invent ways of doing evil. They disobey their parents. They are senseless, faithless, heartless, and ruthless. And I find myself in that list. And if you're honest, so do you. See, he's not saying that uh, being unthankful will merely make you gay. He's saying being unthankful will lead to all sorts of sins, such as greed, malice, and just a, a general lovelessness toward other people. That's why I say the crisis is total. The situation is critical. We're all sinful. We've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. When I read uh, through verses, uh, that, that, that last paragraph from 28 through 32, what came to my mind is that that would make a great, pot, uh, great plot for the TV series Dallas. Because fictionalized evil always looks so good. It always looks so so exciting. 
uh, alluring. Whereas fictionalized good always looks so dull and boring. You, you know how Christians are portrayed in the media? The truth is, real evil is dull and boring. It makes life ugly and, and, and it, it introduces so much heartbreak and sadness. Whereas real good is uh, satisfying and it completes us. What he's picturing here is, is society gone, gone astray simply because we've given up the worship and the love of, of God. We do the things, as Paul says, that we shouldn't do. And we know that it's wrong, verse 32, although they know God's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve death, they not only continue to do these very things, but also approve of those who practice them because we justify it. We blame someone else. We try to find someone else who's responsible for our activity. Someone has put it this way. I went to my psychiatrist to be psychoanalyzed to find out why I killed the cat and blacked my wifey's eyes. He laid me on a comfy couch to see what he could find. And this is what he dredged up out of my unconscious mind. When I was one, my mommy locked my dolly in a trunk. And so it follows naturally that I am always drunk. When I was two, I saw my father kiss the maid one day, and that is why I suffer now from kleptomania. At three, I was ambivalent toward my younger brothers. And that's the reason why to date I've poisoned all my lovers. And I'm so glad since I have learned the lesson I've been taught that everything I do that's wrong is someone else's fault. That's what we would like to do with our sin. We want to put it off on someone else or give it another name or another title. God says it's sin. It's sin. Now, I'm not saying that the answer to alcoholism and homosexual is simply to, homosexual, sexuality is simply to confess your sin and everything's going to be all right. You, there's help. You need help. Any deeply entrenched habit must first be repented of, and then you can begin to receive help from others. And it may take a long time, and you may struggle until the Lord comes back with your dependency. It does not mean that there's immediate release. But but first, we've got to recognize what it is we're doing. Paul says it's sin, and it has to be repented of. It has to be judged and and put away, and we have to ask for God's, God's mercy. And he keeps looking back at you, and, and you say, well, what, what do you want me to do? And he says, I bought you to set you free. You see, that's the term, that's the word that Paul uses here. Not simply a matter of buying us out of the marketplace. He bought us to set us free. And he says, you know, I, I, I love that, I love that. Follow me. But he bought you to set you free. That's what redemption means. That's another way of looking at salvation. The third word that Paul uses, uh, it's found here in verse 25, is that the problem is we justify it, we continue to do it, and then we get inured to it. As Pope said, vice is a monster of so frightful mean as to be hated, needs but to be seen, yet seen too often familiar with her face. We first endure, then pity, then embrace. It's like the myth of Medusa. You, you looked into her face and your heart was turned to stone. 
And if you look into the face of sin long enough, after a while, your heart turns to stone. You get inured to it. You get desensitized to it. You aren't even aware of it. And then we not only do these things, but we approve of those who practice them. I mean, I say that indicts all of us. Every one of us in this room has sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And that's why we're under the wrath of God. That's why our lives fall apart. That's why we break hearts. That's why we break homes. That's why we have trashed our lives and other people's lives. That's why we leave behind so much wreckage, because we are in revolt. We're in rebellion against God. I did not say that. An inspired apostle of Jesus Christ said that. We have to face the fact that we are sinful and in need of mercy. God's wrath is a manifestation of his justice. It wouldn't be fair if people got away with dealing drugs to kids. I, I am outraged when I, when I hear of that sort of thing going on. And we all ought to be. The world wouldn't be at all fair if someone could do that and get away with it. You see, we like to apply that to other people. When it's applied to us, it's a horse of a different color. Because if God's going to be fair, he's got to judge right across the board. And that gets me too. And you. So his, his wrath is a manifestation of his judgment. But I want you to understand it's also a manifestation of his love. It's redemptive because what, what happens is that God takes his hands off of us and he lets us go. And we come to the end of ourselves. We realize that we are out of control that there is no escape apart from God, and we begin to cry out for mercy, and he saves us. That's the gospel. That's the good news. The bad news is that you don't have a prayer, and neither do I. But the good news is that when you come to that point, and you offer up a prayer, and you say, God, be merciful to me, a sinner, he hears you. See, Jesus was the one that told the story about the two men that came into the temple. And one justified himself. He talked about all the good things that he had done. The other man beat his breast and he said, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And Jesus said, which of those two men went away justified? Not the man who justified himself, but the man who called upon God for justification. George MacDonald talks about a tombstone that he saw. Here lies Martin Elgin Broad. Have mercy on my soul, O God, as I would do if I were God and you were Martin Elgin Broad. See, we know that we're in need of mercy. We desperately need mercy. And any man or woman, I don't care how far you've gone, how far out you are, how badly you've, you, you've performed, if you stand before God and say, be merciful to me, a sinner, he hears you and he will save you. There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's, Emmanuel's veins. And sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all. Their guilty stains. Let's pray. Would you weigh down deep in the deepest recesses of your heart, face the fact that you and I are lost? We are utterly lost. We can do nothing apart from God's grace. And will you ask him for mercy? If you've never done that, will you say to him, in the words of the man in the temple, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. 
And he'll hear you. And he'll heal you. And he'll begin to do something about your sin. You, you, you may struggle and you may hurt and it may be painful. But it's worth it because he'll begin to deliver you. Will you come to him? Because one time he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross. All the sinful things that you and I have done, every one of them were placed on Christ. That's the explanation for the so-called cry of dereliction. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me, Jesus cried. And the reason that he was forsaken is because he bore our sins and the Father turned his back on him. And he took those sins with him to hell. And when he was raised, he was raised for your justification and for mine. So will you say, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. Save me. Lord, we, we, we come to this place with a deep sense of awe that you would care about us, that you would suffer and die for our sake, and we thank you for that. We will be eternally grateful that you sacrificed your life for ours. Thank you, Father, in Jesus' name. Readings and, and other works, and then he stumbled across this, this passage here in Romans. He'd never read the book of Romans before. He'd studied St. Thomas Aquinas. He'd studied the writings of, of other of the church fathers, but he had never read the Bible. And he was forced to teach the book of Romans as a result of his job at the University of Wittenberg. And, and he came across this passage that we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from observing the law. And that's when Luther, Luther he just came crashing in on Luther. He realized that justification was by faith and not by the works of the law. So it's faith in Jesus. Can't earn it. Can't work for it. There's no other way to get it. And that's why Paul says there's no basis for our boasting. Where then is boasting? It, it's excluded. We can't bring anything to this, this operation. We don't have anything to bring. We'd like to think that we can, can earn our own salvation, or at least in part. If we can't earn it all, we'd like to earn, earn at least a portion of it, but we can't. C.S. Lewis noted that really there, there are only two religions in the world. There's the real Christianity, authentic Christianity, and there's everything else. And, and, and that, that's the way we have to look at it. Real Christianity says that you cannot do anything to earn God's favor. It's already been done. You just have to believe it. And everyone else wants to add something to the, to the process. It costs us nothing. But it cost him everything. Uh, let me quote Martin Luther again. Because Christ has become a king and a priest for you and has bestowed this great blessing on you, you dare not imagine that it was done for nothing or cost little or comes to you because of your merit. Sin and death were overcome for you in him and through him. Grace and life were given you, but it meant bitter work for him. It cost him everything. He earned it at the greatest expense with his own blood, body, and life. For to put 
down God's wrath, judgment, conscience, hell, death, everything evil, and to gain everything good could not be done without satisfying divine justice. This is why Paul is in the habit of touching also on Christ's suffering and blood whenever he preaches God's grace in Christ in order to note that all our blessings are given to us through Christ, but not without his unspeakable cost. Cost us nothing. Cost him everything. Now, there's one thing more I want to say about faith. I want you to understand it's by faith alone, but I, I want you to understand something else about faith. It's not enough merely to believe this. A lot of people are going through life and they believe it up here. We have to receive it. We have to reach out and and take it. It's no good if it's just up here. It has to be not only comprehended, it has to be apprehended. It has has to be accepted. It has to be taken. You have to reach out your hand and take it. God is offering you salvation. You just have to reach out and take it. That's all. Last August, Carolyn and I celebrated our 29th wedding anniversary. We're, we're coming up on the 30th here this year. and I have a lot of great memories surrounding our wedding and honeymoon. And the, that whole time was just, just a great time. But, but there's one memory, perhaps, that stands out more than any other. It has to do with something my father did for me. I, I came out of the military shortly before we were married, and I was poor as a church mouse. I did not have two dimes to rub together. And uh, uh, actually, uh, the, all the, the money that I made in the months that followed went into just trying to keep myself alive and pay for the engagement ring that I had purchased for Carolyn. My father is fairly well-to-do, but he had the wisdom to not offer me money. He just let me sort of struggle along, and he was available to help, but uh, he didn't say too much. But I was really worried about the honeymoon because I didn't have any money. And neither did Carolyn. She was going to school, and I was working for the YMCA, and the YMCA didn't pay anything in those days. And, and I, I just didn't have any money to, to go on a honeymoon. And more than anything else, I wanted to take Carolyn to Colorado because I used to work up there in the summertime, and I loved that country. And I wanted to take her up to Estes Park and, and shore some of the places where I'd hiked and fished. And, but I couldn't do it. I, I didn't have the money. I was really disappointed. And uh, about a week before the wedding, my father called me in, into the office, and he had a set of keys on his finger like that. And it's a key to his Cadillac, his air-conditioned Cadillac. I had a car, but it was about to break down. I knew it wouldn't make it to Colorado, even if I could afford to put the gas in it to get it there. And uh, besides, it wasn't air-conditioned. And you know what Texas is like in August. Uh, it's very hot. And I just thought, you know, this is going to be a miserable trip, even if we went up there. And I couldn't go. I didn't have any money. Held the keys out to me. Handed me a standard card, handed me some more plastic money, and he said, I want you to go to Colorado. I want you to stay in the best hotels. I want you to eat in the best restaurants. I'm going to pick up the tab. I want you to go and just have a great time. I want this to be the most memorable time time of your life. He just picked it all up for me. I've never forgotten that. Now imagine what I what I did. You know, I I, I could have said, Oh, you know, I don't deserve that. He'd be I mean I'd be right. But uh, no, I, I, that crossed my mind, but I didn't say anything. Or I could say, well, you know, just give me a few more weeks and, and I'll make enough money to do it. You know, I, I can take care of this all by myself. I don't need any help. Or I could have said to him, well, sure, I'll take uh, That's a great deal. I'll take it. And then uh, six months from now, I'll pay you back. 
He wasn't expecting any of that. It was just a free, it was just an offer, free, freely given, no strings attached. He just wanted me to have a great time. You know what I did? I reached out and took the keys. Drove the, drove the Cadillac for a whole week before I got married. Felt like I was a king. <laughs> and we had one of the greatest times of our life. Freely given. Freely given. See? That's what Paul wants you to understand. It's a gift. Can't work for it. Can't earn it either the old-fashioned way or any newfangled way. There isn't any way to work for it and earn it. It's a gift. Just have to reach out and take it. He was made sin for us, this one who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Let's pray. Father, I'm so struck by the irony in this in this passage, the the gift that we enjoy, the free gift, was purchased at, uh, at an infinite cost. The eternal life that we, that we enjoy was secured through your death. The right to call ourselves your sons came because you turned your back on your son. So easy for us to forget what it cost you to be just and to justify us sinners. Lord, we thank you for coming, for being our Savior and being our sin-bearer. And we just just want to say thank you. Thank you so much for what you did. Thank you for taking the burden of our sin, for taking the guilt of it, taking it off of our backs, placing it upon you, purchasing us with your own sacrifice. We love you for it, Lord, and we thank you for it. And we pray in the name of our Savior and sin-bearer, Jesus Christ. Amen.